This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love and be confident that every inch, stitch, sole and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms. Before we start today's podcast, a quick heads up on Sherlock's VIP Club. From restaurants, bars and hotels to beauty, wellness and shopping, Sherlock's partners with some of London's best destinations and hottest brands to bring its VIPs exclusive monthly offers. So why not sign up? It'll cost you just £5 a month or £50 for the year. Use your card once or twice and you'll have made that amount back in no time. For more information, visit sherlocksvip.com. Following a spell as a model in New York in the 80s, Amanda Wakely OBE launched her signature line in 1990 from a small boutique in Chelsea with a £20,000 loan from her father. Developing an international reputation for designing stylish, luxury women's wear, she was pioneered by the late Diana, Princess of Wales. Amanda went on to be dealt some of the hardest knocks the industry can throw, losing, then ultimately buying back, her eponymous brand. Throughout her career, she has remained determined to bring luxury lifestyle clothing to discerning women and is today favoured by the likes of Kate Middleton, Meghan Markle and Angelina Jolie. Numerous awards, that OBE, and a collection that has expanded from evening dresses and bridal to include daywear, sportswear and accessories. Amanda Wakeley, welcome to your Sherlock success story. Thank you. It's lovely to be here. Let's start at the beginning. What are your earliest memories of being interested in clothing and fashion? Oh, when I was a small child, literally delving into the dressing up box, I had um, very glamorous grandmothers who were very generous with their offcasts and their saris from Sri Lanka at the time or you know, their old fur capes or whatever it was. And they were incredibly kind about not worrying about me tearing things up and, and remaking them and, and yes, make, making them into something different. So did you always want to make your own clothes? I always did it intuitively. It wasn't it wasn't something that I set out on a path to do. Um, it was very intuitive. I, I think I learned sort of early on the power of clothes and how good clothes can make you feel. And after Charlton Ladies College, you didn't go to university. You went to New York to model. How did that happen? I chose not to go to university. I was one of those kids that was sort of in a hurry to grow grow up and be in the adult world and go and find my way. Sick and tired of, you know, grotty weather in England and thought, well, where else can I go? And America was the only country that I could think of that uh, I didn't need a foreign language for, which was not something I excelled on in school. And so I took myself off to America, firstly to Florida, and then my modelling took me up to New York and discovered a whole fabulous world of New York in the in the mid-80s. Sounds fun. Um, and how did you get from modelling to fashion design? 
Um, I modeled in New York and worked for a, a really, really inspirational designer called Henry Lear. Uh, he was a designer and retailer. And so I worked in his wholesale showrooms. He had an incredible line at the time called Go Silk, which was phenomenally successful. It was basically army fatigues reworked in washed silk and dyed in all these incredible colors. And he was a great retailer. So I worked with him in the wholesale showroom, modeling and then selling. Also, when he launched his Madison Avenue store, and that was that was such fun because Madison Avenue in those days was just hopping, <laughs> and, <laughs> and girls would come in, and it taught me so much. Girls would come in in their tennis kit with their Kelly bags, but their Kelly bags full of cash, and they would dump you know <laughs> thousands and thousands of dollars on effectively jeans and wash silk and just very everyday but fabulous clothing, and it just taught me you. Never prejudge your customer because you just don't know what's in her handbag or in her wallet for that matter. And, that pretty woman and, moment. <laughs> yeah, that pretty woman moment. And just be kind to people and have fun with them, elevating them through getting them in a great look. And did seeing that make you think, hmm, I can do this. I want to be in this market. Do you know what? I'm ashamed to say it was, I was young and I didn't really have a, a sort of ambitious bone in my body at that moment. I was completely doing what everyone talks to us about now, living the moment. I was soaking up New York, soaking up the nightlife, which was incredible. I mean, it was the era of the, you know, the nightclub area, Studio 54. It was just so exciting. So we'd work all day like Trojans and then go party out and party all night. Quite often I would survive on two hours sleep a night and not even think anything about it. And then, you know, go and collapse on the beach at the weekend. So it was a, it was a very uh, crazy existence, but very informative because the Americans really work unbelievably hard. They've got this great work ethic. And I just, I, I developed my sense of what I like uh, sartorially mm -hmm. in America. And that's when, when I came back to the UK at the end of the 80s, I realized that that very understated, but quite glamorous sort of, we called it sportswear at the time, but it wasn't, it was just, it was just sports luxe, lifestyle type clothing, wasn't really available in the UK. It was very early days, Donna, Calvin, Ralph. Mm. And and so that's why I just started in a very, very small way. I just thought I'll do a tiny collection of my favourite pieces because I was getting stopped when I went into Browns of South Moulton Street and asked, you know, where's your black suede duster coat come from well I've made it myself and so I the thought dream. there must be a gap in the market there was no great strategic business plan I'm ashamed to say and what brought you back to England we partied out do no, no 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 I was getting married at the time don't even go there right um, <laughs> but it seemed like a good idea at the time and you know then I sort of realized the opportunity and I was just passionate about making beautiful things how did you make those clothes you know who was making that black duster that you were stopped so um, about. a lot of the time I was making it myself and my father very kindly offered me a £20,000 loan and I created a very small collection of all of the pieces that I really loved and quite simply sold it to friends and friends of friends. It wasn't, there wasn't a launch, there wasn't a... You, you know, just quietly started doing it. Yes. And where were you having the clothes made? 
I had a tiny little two-bedroom flat in Chelsea. One bedroom was my workroom and the other was where I lived. And my drawing room was my showroom. And so most of those pieces were made there or by outworkers. And did you have an amazing little black book of contacts I mean it sounds like you were living quite no quite I did cool life but it, but it was did very you? it was very hand-to-mouth it really was because I made the, the pieces to order so really my only investment was my samples and then if I had an order I'd have a deposit and I would go off buy the fabric but then sort of quite quickly there weren't enough hours in the day the appointments just kept roaring in I was making clothes all night then it just really struck me that there was an opportunity for ready-to-wear, you know, not making everything to order. And that's in the early 90s. You know, my my husband at the time and I took a a store on the Fulham Road and took that massive leap into ready-to-wear, which was a huge leap from made to order. And just going back a bit, that £20,000 that your father lent you, what did you use that for? Well, that was really for to make my first samples. And I took on my first employee, who was pattern cutter, dressmaker. I mean, it was very, very little, very simple. I did my own books. And then I had an accountant who would come in once a month and tell me what I'd done wrong and what I'd done (laughs) right and tidy it up and do my VAT returns. And were you sewing yourself? Yes, absolutely. And I and I loved that element of creation. But there's only, you know, it's unsustainable. There's only so many hours in the day and there's only so long that you can go on with five hours sleep a night. And, and you talked about a sort of relaxed style. Was that your aesthetic? It was, from, from but, the I, but I also love a glamorous... Yes, I was going to um, say, you're renowned yes. for your evening wear. Yeah, I'm a romantic and I love how clothes move and uh, fabric moves and so yes I very quickly worked a lot on the evening dresses that seemed to be my niche in the in the beginning in the early years and did you have anyone that you were going to for advice were you just going with your gut no I mean it, it was it's ridiculous but it was a very different era you know now you've got mentors you've got the internet you've got it's a completely different era back then when I started yes the internet was in existence but oh my god there was no netaporters or Mm. google was barely there you know it was a very very different era so I sort of made my mistakes and learnt from them and was there a piece that you designed in those very early days that was the one that everyone wanted when you thought "Mm, I've really got something here interestingly it was and it's still a very iconic piece in the collection Back in the early 90s, cashmere seemed to be the domain of men. Men had cashmere sweaters, women didn't. What? That's I, it was It was ridiculous. So you'd borrow your boyfriend's cashmere sweater. And I thought, you know, actually the really clever thing to do would be to do a fabulous boyfriendy type cashmere sweater, but line the sleeves in silk, and then your boyfriend wouldn't borrow it back. <laughs> and so to this day, we still do versions of the cashmere boyfriend sweater with the satin in the sleeves. Love so you it. roll the sleeves up and you've got this lovely bit of satin. Oh, but, love it. But, Even more luxurious. Yes, the cashmere sweater is one lined in silk. <laughs> uh, so the cashmere was really popular. Yes, but it was tiny. You know, it was just a few pieces. That the whole thing was was tiny. And do you remember who your first clients were? Gosh, are they still clients? No, no, I don't. I mean, yes, it's it's interesting. Every now and then, when I'm in Albemarle Street, and someone will walk through the door, and I think, oh my god, 
you were one of my first clients and it's a really lovely feeling Mm. seeing that face again. And do you remember doing any marketing in those days? Was it all word of mouth? It was word of mouth and and PR. I had a PR agency on board and they were a great PR agency. And then I was really, really lucky. The deputy editor of Vogue, Anna Harvey, was advising Diana, Princess of Wales. And she said, I'm going to introduce you to because I think you'd really get on. And I think your style is really right for Diana. And she did exactly that. I had many happy funny, joyful appointments with Diana at my studio, including the very first one, which I I thought, right, okay, they'll send the sniffer dogs in five minutes before she arrives and all the rest of it. And I thought, okay, so it was sort of on countdown. And I thought, okay, so once they've sent the sniffer dogs in, I can brush my hair and tidy the place up. And literally five minutes before she was due to arrive, the doorbell went. And I thought, right. And it was her apologising for being no early. No sniffer dogs. No sniffer dogs, <laughs> no bodyguards, nothing. I think they were out in the car. But it was just all very relaxed and oh. very warm and friendly. And what was she like, warm and friendly? Oh, she was fantastic, with wicked sense of humour, wicked sense of humour. And great fun, loved beautiful clothes, really loved how she could message through her clothes. Amazing. Yeah. There have been anyone like that. And my one, one business regret is I remember receiving a cheque that was signed by Charles and not even thinking about it and just putting it straight in the bank because that's where it had to be. And I thought, <laughs> why didn't you take a photocopy of that and just have oh, it in the loo? Yes. That would have been... <laughs> yes, hindsight. Yeah. And do you think Diana wearing... So she, she famously wore, didn't she, one of your dresses when she announced... She wore yes. She wore um, a dark green green suit. Yes, when when she retired from from public life, and I had no idea that that was going to be the case. And in fact, I think probably a mutual friend had told the press that it was by Amanda Wakely because, you know, you couldn't Google things then. It wasn't on the Daily Mail seconds later. But there wasn't a Daily Mail online, but it was in the Daily Mail the following day. And then by that time, we did have our store on Fulham Road. And I literally sold out in that, of that suit in 24 hours. The yeah. Diana effect, yeah. the original effect. Yeah. And so you really did. And do you think celebrity, because you've, I mean, you have dressed incredible women. Is that really the key, do you think, to it, making it? I always think, yes, brand awareness mm. is is really critical and it always helps. Yes, I can't, I can't say otherwise. And do you feel more pressure if you know that your dress is going to be scrutinised and, and in the media for... Forever. Uh, you know, you want it to look its best. If it doesn't, if it's been sat on awkwardly in a car or whatever, but it, it's life. You you know, you just move on. Mm. So tell us, you were designing in your studio in Chelsea, and you then mentioned that you opened this store along with your husband yes. uh, on the Fulham Road. Yes. So h- how did that come about? Why the Fulham Road? Fulham Road, it just felt right. It was down the road from my little studio. So Chelsea felt right to me. I was sort of very much a, a Chelsea girl and a lot of my customers lived in the area. So that felt right. And then quite soon after that, we had an opportunity to open a concession, like a shop-in shop in Harvey Nichols, London, which we did. And that was a huge success. And then, and then started building the concessions through that and started building a, a, a wholesale business. And what year was it that you opened your store in Fulham Road? 93. Wow. And then you had seven years of great success dressing you know, the rich and famous. But in 2000, 
you divorced your husband. And he owned 100% of the shares in your business. Yes, that's that right? right. And famously sold the business from under you, as I read. Yes, it was It was not exactly straightforward. He was holding the shares offshore. It was unfortunate. Anyhow, the white knight of uh, Richard Caring came along and he bought Neil's shares from him and then he gave me back 20% of the business as well as backing it. So I was really, really lucky in the sense that I I wasn't just an employee, I was a shareholder going forward. And your new role was as creative director... Effectively, were you an employee of Richard Caring? Did it did it uh, feel different? It, it felt different, but actually, um, Richard's an incredible man, and he he's helped. a restaurant tycoon. People listening and recognise the name exactly. But at the time, he was Richard. He sorry, he was Philip Green's partner in BHS, and he was basically king of the high street. He was doing a lot of the supply of the all the clothing to many of the high street brands from M&S to Next to BHS. All, all of those big, big, big brands. He was doing the sourcing out of, you know, globally, but, but particularly out of China. And so what was great is he really helped me with my supply base, which was a very, very important thing during that time. And so that allowed us to expand into different different concessions and, and really grow the business. And then in the middle of the noughties, he decided he wanted to focus his business onto restaurants and nightclubs. And that's when he said, we, we need to find you a new business partner because I'm, I'm getting out of fashion. And he sold it to a Saudi he did. billionaire. Yes, who was looking for businesses to invest in to inspire his three children to work, which you could right. say was probably not the best indicator of how it would all sort itself out. So he was very hands-off, as was the daughter that he bought the business for. And unfortunately, I had a few years there with very, very distracted, uninvolved investors. Absolutely. And, and was the out would vision of the business changing? Did the customer know these changes were happening? I don't think the customer was really that aware that the changes were happening. You know, obviously there was a certain amount of interference from management and just the sort of no real structure put into the business, which was sort of, it became really disappointing, actually, that that I wasn't getting the support the business needed. Mm So when they actually did the dirty on me in 2008. In 2009, Hugh Morrison, my partner in life, helped me buy the IP back of the company. So I was out of the company for about a month. And then a couple of months later, we actually bought the business. So there was no, never any real length of time that I wasn't actively involved in the business. And so you're, so you've talked about your now partner, Hugh, mm-hmm. um, who you bought back the business with. Was that something that you always wanted to do together? Do you do it together now? What's his role? I mean, he's he's a phenomenal entrepreneur, very, very clever man. And he could see that it was my baby and that there was a real opportunity to take control of it again. And, you know, after many years of being a minority shareholder and all of that, and, and there was a very strong um, sentiment from customers that, you know, we should continue and there was real loyalty there. So 
that's why we did what we did and with the idea that we would restructure it because the actual structure of the business had been really neglected. So he helped me very, very instrumental in restructuring it and getting it to a stage where it was investable. And that's exactly what we did in 2012 when we took on private equity investment to really drive it forward as a lifestyle brand, really reposition it as a lifestyle brand. Previously, it very much been a, a brand known for dresses and wedding dresses. And it seemed that there really was an opportunity for the name to be a much wider offering of lifestyle product. And that whole process, so raising private equity money, were you and Hugh doing that together? Yes, and absolutely. How, how was working together? Oh, it was fantastic. I mean, you know, he's he's a brilliant businessman. He's a wonderful mentor. He's a great communicator. That's that's what he does. And it was an incredible journey, one that I absolutely could not have done without him. So you raised your private equity funding. What did you plan to do with the investment? So the premise was to really create a full lifestyle collection, which great principle, absolutely right for the brand. But you can't do that overnight. And I think, you know, we basically resourced about 80% of our supply base because obviously we were doing a much wider range of products. I'd love to say that was a simple process. It wasn't, but it got us to where we are now. And when you say a simple process, do you mean raising money? No, no, no. The, well, the, the raising money is the business side of it, but then once you've raised that money, it's, it's how you're spending it and how, A, you're creating all of this new product and, B, how you're communicating it. And I think that takes time. It takes season after season. We really had to pull back from all of our wholesale accounts because we wanted to say we're lifestyle, we're not just evening dresses. And so that's been a journey, it really has. And in part of that process is communicating what what you do. And we're still communicating that journey. And you do find that there are some people that are still think of it as a as a dress brand and get surprised when they go online or go into your flagship store and well, they should you try your fabulous trousers because your trousers are very special. Oh, that is so kind because actually that's one thing that was one of my real missions was to be able to have trousers that that worked for everybody shape. But I think as women, if you have a great pair of pants, it's, oh. like, a, it's like a man having a great suit. Mm. They they can elevate you. They You can take half a stone off you mm. um, and make you feel amazing. I think we're so guilty of going, oh, there are, you know, folks on the top half and, but actually if you're right, if you get a great fitting pair of yeah. trousers, you just feel so much yeah. better about yourself. And they're not easy to cut. And so we've got an amazing cutter and we've worked really, really hard on those different blocks. They do fit brilliantly. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. You should celebrate yourself every day. But some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection. 
Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. In 2014, you opened on 18 Albemarle Street. It's quite a unique store it, it is it was always my vision to have a Mayfair flagship and we looked at Mount Street because that was you know where everyone was looking and actually we found this incredible site on Albemarle Street which we knew wasn't as developed as Mount Street but it meant we could get twice as much space and I really wanted a home in Mayfair for the brand and so that's exactly what we've got we've and I designed it so that it sort of looks like a home I think there's nothing worse than these these very cold yes. edifices, these art Stock. galleries yeah. that you go into and you feel like you've got to dress up to go into. Well. Yes. And so it, it's very warm, very inviting. Yes, it's got this incredible staircase that was... And when I found out, it was put in in the 20s by the couturier who owned the store at the time for her models to walk up and down it. just That just completely <laughs> sold me. It done, just I'll felt, take it. Yeah, done, <laughs> I'll take it. And then what, I, what I've done over the last 18 months is I really 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 wanted people to feel very welcome walking through the door and and I sort of thought how can we really use the store even more for you know it was always my vision to have a very flexible space so that we could hold lunches or dinners upstairs and then I thought you know I love health and well-being and I've got a lot of interesting contacts in that area. So at the end of 2016, I created what I call Weekly Wellbeing. And so once a month, sort of on a Monday or a Tuesday night between six and eight, because I figured that's after the school run or after work and before dinner, I, I will host evenings and do a Q&A with different yeah, health and well-being ones, specialists. Yeah. And they have become really, really lovely evenings where people come, they meet new people. It, they're very open. And, you know, as women, we're very hungry for knowledge and mm. information. And if we can share that, then that's great. In a glamorous, yes. glamorous and, setting. Then and, what's and then not to love about that? Also, they walk through the door and they think, God, this isn't scary. This is actually really beautiful. Oh, and I didn't know, know she did cashmere joggers or a handbag that looked like that. And they're not selling events at all. But it's but just, if you can do, then, yeah. Well, why not? Yes. Yeah. And and what's it been like sort of second time around? I mean, you said you were only out of business really for a month. Yeah. But there have sort of been two launch phases yes. of your business. Yes. Has, is it harder? I think it's amazing to have had that opportunity and to almost draw a line from where I was to how I wanted the brand to be because I think quite often businesses and brands can evolve in a way that you don't necessarily plan and so this time it's been lovely to have that sort of clean sheet of paper it's a very crowded market it's a very noisy market we've got you know god knows how many collaborations going mm. on there's just a lot of noise in the market so I think it's it's never been more important to really stay true to yourself and and say this is who I am is that what you're focused on because I imagine it's easy to get distracted about as you say the latest collaboration innovation celebrity this that and the other do you feel like you can be successful if you sort of keep your head down and I, be true to you? I think it's you? really, really important to um, be true to your brand, work out what your brand is, what it stands for, and, and stay absolutely true to that. And with that in mind, 
what's your sort of take on fashion week how involved do you get in that how important is that I think fashion week is important I think it depends what your brand is and being a lifestyle brand yes it's important for us to show what we're doing but it's it's absolutely not relevant for us to spend 150 grand doing a catwalk show twice a year and now we've got pre-collections too and a lot of people are doing pre-collection shows and before you know it you're spending hundreds of thousands of pounds and actually we we've decided very strategically that we wanted to go very digital talk directly to our customers and make that our real focus no we're not a high high trend brand that are making sort of massive great fashion statements every season it's not about that it's about building beautiful wardrobes and you know having those lovely trend pieces but they're not what drives our business mm. And what's your marketing strategy look like this time around? That sort of terrifying, this digital... You know, you said it was so simple back in the day, there's no no portrait, it was literally just you. It's a very interesting era because with the demise of print, not complete disappearance of it, but the, the decline, demise, yeah, yeah the yeah. decline, and this spike of digital and the importance for content. And so literally just a few months ago, we've been working with an amazing creative agency called Spring. And I just said to them, okay, clean sheet of paper, guys. We're not doing the pyramid with spending the most amount of money on eight images for campaign and a little film and the least amount of money on our web images. I said, we've got to flatten the whole structure out and we've got to have build more stories into the season and just have more newness all of the time. And so actually that's exactly what we're doing. So I'm really, exci- really excited in about two months' time. Our, a, we've got a new platform, uh, web platform, but B, our imagery will look completely different. And so I, I just can't wait to see. Oh, exciting. Yes. yes. And, and I have to mention, I thought you were so smart a few years ago, maybe it was a couple of years ago, when you put Deliciously Ella in your campaign. And I know you've since followed with Catherine Parsons, who's the founder of the brilliant Decoded. Yeah. And I thought, God, someone's thinking the same as me. And, and I've sort of been amazed for the last few years why the Vogue's of this world haven't been using influencers in their campaigns because really they're more real in inverted commas and they're sort of what we want to see I think more than a model that means nothing to you and you have no connection with why did you do that and was that a successful move it was phenomenally successful I have a passion for real women I do what I do because I want real women to feel amazing but for me it is genuinely I get a bigger buzz out of seeing a woman coming out of the fitting room literally walking taller because she's been transformed by what she's put on than I do... Well, listen... Because she's wearing your trousers, that's why. Because she's wearing my trousers. But it's wonderful seeing high-profile um, celebrities, etc., wearing wearing Wakely. It's always a huge honour and a great brand endorsement. But actually, the real challenge is making all of us in this room today feel great. Mm. You know, with in this digital world where you just sort of flick over an image and it's all retouched actually what is real and so for me I was passionate about having a real woman albeit a very beautiful very clever very entrepreneurial woman in my images and so it's that's been a fun journey 
Yeah, well, I think it was amazing. A, you know, she looked fabulous, or they looked fabulous, and B, it got us all talking and, and yeah, pay so, attention, I and, think. And, and like, actually, Ooh. the last campaign with Ronya Fuhrer, who's a divorce lawyer, I mean, she looks amazing. And, and the collection's very much inspired by gaucho culture in South America. And I thought, this woman has got to not just lead a horse, she's got to be able to ride a horse. <laughs> so that horse rearing with her on it, she was completely owning that horse. <laughs> it was fantastic Love to it. shoot. I bet. And what's your role in the business today? Do you still do all the design? I have a little design team. We work very collaboratively uh, and I love that process. I'm creative director and founder, so I lead the design and there's nothing that doesn't go into the collection without my sign-off, but it's wonderful to really evolve the creative team and let them bring freshness to the table. Do you struggle, you know, as the years go by? No, I mean, because I'm I'm one of those horrible perfectionists that just the minute we've signed off one collection, you're just thinking, okay, what can we do better next time? And what's our new woman? Where's she from? What was her life? And you're into mood boards and, and into newness and new fabrics and developing new fabrics with these amazing mills in Italy. And that's, that's really exciting to me to see what they can do with weaving. I mean, some of the fabrics we're using now look like they've been embroidered and embellished. They're not. They're woven. They're just, it's phenomenal. I find that humbling and inspiring and and fun. I always find when you talk to designers, you just, that passion that how you talk about fabrics with such passion. And the rest of us sort of sit here and we don't really think about these things. And it's not until you talk to designers that you really understand the intricacies of of creating what you what you do and what an art it is it's incredible and you do we talked a bit about collaborations you've done a few we've got to talk about qvc yes i was saying before we went on that i've got a bit of a fascination with qvc and in 2016 you launched a range of bags in qvc that was a license and they call it monogram by amanda wakeley and the bags are absolutely beautiful. I carry the monogram bags as much as I carry my legend mainline bags. had a lot of fun developing them up and, and the whole idea was that the branding was a little bit more obvious so I created this beautiful teardrop shape monogram uh, mm. with the AW in it and it's like a little talisman charm. So one of the major outlets for that collection is QVC and it's great fun working with them and they know their customer well. You're straight into your customer's home talking directly to them and for a designer to be able to reach a much wider audience and keep it really personal and talk like we're talking about how passionate we feel about the materials and what made me place that stripe on that bag and line it with a contrast pop colour or all of those things. It's great fun. And they've got an amazingly loyal customer base. Yeah. And, it, and it's know, huge. I it's mean, huge. It's and huge. It, it used to be sort of everyone's dark secret, but actually they sell incredible cosmetics. They're on this journey of discovery for their customers. So basically taking their customer on a journey and say, you can trust us. And the customer really does trust them. So we did phenomenally well, or do phenomenally well with the bags. And then as of this evening, I launch our new sunglass collection, which I'm really excited exciting. about. Exciting, which I've seen, uh, and they're fabulous. They're fab. And what, what's really exciting for me is that everyone in our office has tried them on because we allowed, the, of course, the team to do personal orders. And what was exciting is 
they work on so many different faces. So, you know, you think, oh, okay, so you're selling sunglasses effectively online or with, with home shopping. You know, is that going to work? And I... With these glasses, I think it's really going to work. Time will tell. Yes, it will. But but I'm really proud of the collaboration. It's not like selling to, you know, a discount store or something that you'd be ashamed of. But I'm I think proud of it for the brand. People who don't know QVC don't quite get that. I think they, you know, they think it's a bit of TK Maxx. It's actually not. It's There's huge. It's so not. And in fact, they sell 50% of our product online rather than during the live shows. And we do very well from the live shows. Do you have to create at a lower price point for QVC? Well, the bags are a diffusion line. Right. So, so we do literally key rings and leather card holders, you know, um, business card holders from sort of £30 right. all the way up, and the bags go up to about £450. Okay. But they're beautifully made, really beautifully made, with fantastic hardware on them. And, and as I said, you know, I happily carry those bags. There's nothing that's remotely despect ab- about them. And then we've got jewellery launching with them, watches, which I can't wait to see because we haven't actually seen the, the prototypes of them. We've just seen the sort of 3D printed casts of them. And then we have home fragrance. Amazing. Yes. And I mean, I was going to say, was it easy to get onto QVC? I mean, sitting here chatting to you, clearly you're a natural. Um, but did you just wake up one day and think, I want to do QVC? How does that come about? Because I remember interviewing Thea Green, the founder of Nails Inc. She was also, you're off to do QVC after this, so was she. Um, Interesting. So clearly, lots of people are keen to get in there because it's, you know, one of the biggest retailers in the country. It, it really is, and um, they do it well. Um, the, we have a licensing agent, so they connect us with our bag manufacturer or our watch manufacturer and and then they follow that process through and they're very very well connected with the whole QVC world and so when they originally talked to QVC two years ago and said how do you feel about an Amanda Wakeley bag collection they said yes but show us so we then created the bag collection they loved it and with the huge success of the bag collection they then said okay what next you know and so that's when we said well we could do watches jewelry home fragrance and sunglasses in the in the first instance and then earlier this year I said to them if you've got a woman that's spending 150 pounds on a face cream she's going to buy an Amanda Wakely cashmere would you give us the opportunity to trial it? And so later this year, we will do we'll do a cashmere blend. So we're doing a 50-50. So the price point will be a little keener than what we sell in our flagship store and online. But it will be a very beautiful product. God, I need to tune in. The trouble is I have a bit of an addictive uh, personality when it comes to things like QVC. So I think that might be the end of me. I might never be seen again. <laughs> I'm just sitting there glued to QVC. It's amazing how many people do watch it. You know, when, I mean, I don't really publicise the fact. I've, in fact, I, I will do later. But people would sort of text you after and said, I just saw you on QVC. And you'd just go, what were you doing watching QVC at nine <laughs> o'clock on a Monday night? <laughs> All these people you'd never Guilty secrets. Yeah. And do you feel this time round in your business, in this world of influencers, that you have to put yourself out there? more for the success of the business yes I do and I'm not doing it enough and that is work in progress because I think understandably the customer wants to understand the name behind the brand and actually I do it with the weekly well-being and all of that you know I need to do it more 
on Instagram and on social media and just sort of, you know, people are buying into my lifestyle. Yeah. So And your glamour and style, you know, is so inspiring. But you know what it's like. You don't always feel glamorous and stylish. <laughs> you might not, but I, I think most I think most people would um would disagree with that. And um, we've got to talk about your bridal range. Yes. The yes. Royal Wedding on Saturday. God, they are so incredible. How did that happen? How did you get into the world of wedding dresses? It was a lovely, natural evolution because it was, oh God, about 15 years ago, probably a little bit more. And I just had bride after bride saying, can I have that dress in ivory, that evening dress in ivory with a train? And so it was a a no-brainer to add that on uh, as a business. And we had brides anyhow coming for an oyster by a satin dress and you just thought, actually, why not make it in pearl or ecru? And interestingly now, there's sort of a slight swing back to ready-to-wear for brides because they've got so many other choices and so they're spending their money on so many different things that you know they might get married after they've had two children and so it's interesting to see that slight swing back to a little bit more of a ready-to-wear approach or a jumpsuit approach or whatever I'm curious to see what the knock-on effect will be after the royal wedding this weekend which I think will have the whole fairy tale wedding I want to be. I want Let's to be a princess. Hope so. <laughs> Let's hope so. We need to live. We, you know, that's we live for these moments. I, we, I think Brits? it's a great moment for Brand Britain. I'm. I'm really can't wait. I'm doing quite a lot of TV commentary around the wedding. You know, this weekend and on Saturday, and it's it will be such a happy moment. I, I did the same for William and Catherine's wedding, and it was. London was leaping. Buzzing. It was yeah. unbelievable. I know, I know, I'm with you. I think it's a great, great thing. And what advice do you give to brides when they're shopping for their dress? Ooh, just remember when your husband-to-be turns round, he needs to recognise the woman walking towards him. <laughs> I think, you know, remember your photos have got to look amazing in 10 years' time, 20 years' time. You can't go, ooh, I hate my dress. Yeah, and I, you want to look like you. You want yeah. to look back and think that was me at my best, not yes, unrecognisable. Exactly. Me at my best, me being able to dance till dawn and having ruined my dress but hey ho hopefully you're never going to wear it again yeah quite what qualities have kept you going for 25 years in business (laughs) passion for what I do uh tenacity definitely you know when you get knocked down you just pick yourself up and get back on the pony basically Mm. and and just working with some great people great team it just that makes you want to go in in the morning you spend more time with your team than you do really your your family Mm. so unless you like who you're working with what's the point I think we're going to end there. Thank you, Amanda. I've what loved a pleasure. chatting. I know. It's just been like a great chat over a cup of coffee. It's been great. Thank you. And I love your personal style. You need to put yourself out there more. Oh. You've got me. Hope line is <laughs> That's it for today. I hope you've enjoyed that. Do please rate, review, subscribe, and tell your friends. We'll see you next time. Bye-bye. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that 
Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. 